You know, great works of art, great literature, really any art that tells a story will do one thing really well, and, and that is that they, they always finish well, they end well. The artist knows that how you end the score, how you end the story, um, how you end the film is really critical to that being a great piece of, of literature. So at the end of these stories, the ones we love, the heroes always win. And uh, the couple, um, you know, they live happily ever after. And uh, Auntie M, there's no place like home. And these are the ways that we, we feel a, there's a period that is put on the end of the story, on the end of uh, the, uh, the, the narrative, the art, whatever it is. And it... It, it just puts a period on it, right? How you end is really, really important. You know, preachers know this as well. Did you know that? How you end a sermon is really, really important. They say, you know, people remember what you say at the beginning and what you say at the end, uh, everything in between, maybe. <laughs> I heard great advice one time. They, uh, it was this for good preaching. Uh, tell them what you're going to say. Say it. Tell them what you said. Sit down. It's good advice. And we find the Apostle John, you know, he was a fisherman. It's not like he went to school on how to write or how to preach, but he has learned a little bit about good communication. And he gets to the end of, of this letter, 1 John, and he does what, uh, you know, it's not Annie M, there's no place like home, but it's essentially that because he tells them what he has said. He tells us what he has said, and he puts a period on this inspired by the Holy Spirit letter that we call 1 John. It is a summary, it is a final exhortation, it is a period on the whole letter. Now I need to tell you that this is not, well this is the end of the letter, it is not the end of the series. Next weekend I'm going to be doing a message right out of my own story and my own struggle with assurance and confidence uh, in my salvation and I think, it's, I think it'll resonate with a lot of people. I hope that you can come. Next weekend, we're going to do that. And then the next weekend is a final message from 1 John 5.13, which is the theme verse of the whole thing, a wrap-up, a big summary. How can I know that I am a Christian? And uh, then the next weekend, I forget, what's that next weekend again? Ah, oh, yes, Vision, Vision Weekend is coming up. That's right. More on that to come. Now, with that said... Let's read the last section here of 1 John. We've been studying this for almost a year, and here we are at the end. Here is what it says, beginning in verse 18. You know what? Why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word? Could we do that to finish the letter out? Let's do that. Thank you so much. 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that is all of 1 John. Love it. Great. Thanks. You may be seated. May God bless his word to us.
And as I read that, I, I, I don't know if you picked it up, but it doesn't take much of a Bible scholar to see what John's emphasis is. He repeats at the beginning of each of these verses, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, it is the same word. What does he say? We know, we know, we know. So John's outline is our outline tonight. Three things that we know. And here's where uh, the written word fails to communicate something that if John was speaking, I think that we would get. You know, whenever you see in the Bible a repetition, it is there to give emphasis. Now, when I'm talking, I can give emphasis in different ways. I can say the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you're saying to yourself, that summarizes your entire ministry here, Steve. Yes, it does. Indeed, it's all about him. Uh, That's my one main thing that I want to say. Uh, So I can repeat things for emphasis. I can also raise my voice, can't I? And I can give it a little texture. You need to listen to me. And I can whisper and you all think, what is he saying? So I can do all these things verbally to create emphasis and interest. But when you're writing, uh, that is, it doesn't come across as much. But we see here in John's writing what one commentator calls three shouts of confidence. So that if John was preaching here, he'd get to the end of this letter, if he was preaching First John, and he would say, we know that, and we know that, and we know that. And you would all understand that John is fired up about this, and he wants us to get the emphasis of what he is saying. Now, notice the context to understand what it is he actually is saying. Last weekend, we took a look at this difficult passage, verses 16 through uh, 16 and 17 in particular, where it talks about a, we see a brother who's involved in sin and there's sin that leads to death and there's sin that doesn't lead to death and, and, and one we should pray for and one we shouldn't. What we saw last week is basically that we have a responsibility to pray for one another. And that sin, all sin, is, is wrong. But for the Christian whose sins are forgiven, those sins do not ultimately lead to death, which is why we can pray that God would give each of our brothers and sisters life, that we would turn away from rebellious sin. And indeed, all of us eventually will if we are children of God. Now, verse 13, as I've already said, is the theme verse of the whole letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This letter is basically about how you can know that you're a Christian or not. And over and over again, we've said the things that we oftentimes look to to be sort of uh, for me to know that I'm saved are not the things that John even mentions and even cares about. How can I know? How can I know? How can I know? This is about knowledge and confidence and assurance. And we see in verse 13, his purpose, I write these things so that you may know these things. And we can ask the question, well, what is it that we know? What is the, what is the ground of that confidence? What is the essence of that knowledge? And it is that that John unpacks at the end of his letter. This is what we know. And I've entitled this message, Unshakable Confidence. What do we know? Three knowings, three confidences that are grounded in the person of God and in his saving work on our behalf. The first one we see in verse 18, we have confidence in our walk. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now this is familiar territory in 1 John. We have seen it before. We are born of God. 
And the, the, the fruit of that being born of God is that we have a new nature. We have a new heart. And in a way you could say, 1 John is basically just a letter explaining what that new heart looks like. What does it look like to be regenerated, to be born again, to have uh, the Spirit of God within you? What does it actually look like when that is the case? But here we have John repeating what he has said before, chapter 3, verses 6, and in verse 9, and in other places, describing then the relationship that we have with God. If we are born of God, it means that we are children of God. And we saw then chapter 3, verse 1, that amazing statement, behold what manner of love that the Father has lavished on, upon us, that we would be called children of God. That astonished children of an adopting God, God has lavished His love upon us and has placed us within His family. We are in a relationship with the living God. And that miracle of rebirth in us changes us. By nature, we are spiritually different. We are born spiritually dead. But by virtue of Jesus' work on the cross, and that appropriated to me by faith as I believe in Him, and the miracle of the Spirit of God making me alive again, birthing me spiritually, now there is within me this new nature. I still have the old nature. I still crave sin. I still get a rotten attitude. I'm still selfish. I'm still prideful. Great place for an amen. Okay. But by the grace of God and through the gospel, I have now this new nature, this nature that is alive unto God, this new nature that has a new heart and new desires and new passions and new directions. I am a completely different person. Galatians says I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I am living out now this new creation in ways that are evidenced. And that's what John is focusing on, right? My moral directions and decisions are different than when I was uh, uh, simply a carnal man. My loves are different. I love other people, not just myself, which is the way that I was prior to coming to faith in Jesus. So there's this whole new thing that God is doing in my life and it changes me in ways that are observable and give me assurance that I am actually saved. So I have these two natures, the old and the new. And we talked about what John says here that because of the new nature, the old nature will not perpetually dominate, that I will not continue in sin. In fact, both in chapter 3 and here, the word that is used there, the verb there, it means continue to sin. It doesn't mean that we will not sin. Uh, we, we do that every day in one uh, regard or another. But I will not continue in a rebellious sin. I will not uh, ha- sin in, with a high hand against God and remain in that condition. I can't. Why? Because I have this new nature within me. And because God is committed to my salvation, he will not allow me to continue in this sin. Eventually, all God's prodigals come home because he promises that he will do it. So no one born of God continues to sin because he is born of God. And you might recall, I I had some fun with this because I, uh, back in chapter 3, I I shared an illustration. I think it fits. I'm going to repeat it here again. Uh, The difference between, if you want to understand what John is saying here, it's the difference between pigs and sheep. Okay, pigs and sheep. What do we know about pigs? You can take a pig. You can clean him up. You can brush his teeth. You can shine the hooves 
hoofs, hoofs, <laughs> what's plural there, I'm not sure. His hoofs, I am from Iowa, take it from an expert. Uh, you can shine his feet, you can, you can uh, you know, groom the little uh, tail, you can do all of those things. Um, uh, but as I like to do with my, my daughter, uh, the pig will still go wee, wee, wee all the way home. And where is home for a pig? It is in the mud. It is in the mud. Pigs love to be in the mud. They can't wait to get in the mud. They'll be clean sometimes, but they love to be in the mud, and eventually they get back in it, right? Now, sheep, on the other hand, sheep get muddy. They're out in the field. It's raining. They get in the mud. They can make a misstep. They're not very smart. They can go off a path and find themselves in a muddy place and where it's all icky and you know, they can trip and fall in the mud and then their wool is all uh, dirty and, you know, they can hang out with pigs sometimes and they can get dirty by hanging out with pigs sometimes, Psalm 1. But the sheep is different than the pig. The sheep will get dirty, but he wants to be clean and he eventually will. The pig can be clean, but he wants to be dirty and he eventually will. And so you see in there really what John is saying. The sheep will not continue to be in the mud because he is by nature not somebody who wants to do that he will by nature eventually be clean and the christian born of god with this new nature now the spirit of god within me while i can be stupid and i can get off the path and i can hang out with uh society and i can get dirty like them and i can i can uh i can just uh trip and fall and find myself dirty. But my nature as a son of God does not want to stay there. And eventually will not be there. And eventually will be sanctified. Is the word that the Bible talks about. As I am increasingly holy in my heart and life. Living in a way that pleases the Lord. That's where that nature wants to go. And that's where God wants me to go. Sheep don't stay muddy and the longer that you know and i remember in the illustration i had fun with it there was a big storm of course and and it was so muddy the farmer couldn't tell what kind of animal was in the mud all he saw was eyeballs looking out at him and he called the veterinarian and he said can you help me here i i i just have two eyeballs in the mud i can't tell what animal it is and the veterinarian says well how long has he been in the mud and he says three weeks he says that's a pig because if it was a sheep it would have gotten out long ago right I throw that in there because it was fun the first time and it was kind of fun the second time. Indeed it was. And John celebrates this here in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And there are two reasons for this. He says, first of all, he who is born of God protects him. Now who is he talking about there? That is Jesus. He who is born of God protects him. Christ Jesus actively works by the Holy Spirit in our lives to ensure that this redemption that he bought with his own blood will be finally accomplished. Think of that, Christian. Jesus is working on your behalf. He wants to see you make it. You are going to make it because he's working on your behalf, interceding for you at the right hand of God, operating there as prophet, priest, and king giving the Holy Spirit as a seal and a sign and an assurance that we are saved and will be saved until the end. The promises of God that He has promised that He will fulfill. 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, neither height nor death or anything in all creation, separates from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All these things are brought to be to, are brought to bear upon our hearts and upon our lives in a way that Jesus is guaranteeing that we're going to make it. Okay, we're going to make it. He's working on your behalf, and because of that, the evil one cannot touch you. Is what John writes here. Cannot touch you. Eugene Peterson says, The God begotten are also the God protected. God began the good work. Philippians, you began the good work and you will carry it on to completion. This is a promise of God. So that Satan cannot touch us. This means he will not gain an ultimate victory over us. He will not destroy our faith. It is grounded and rooted in God himself. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan can't tempt us, and he certainly does. And it doesn't mean that he can't discourage us, and he certainly does. And it can't mean that he he doesn't compromise us temporarily, because he certainly does. All the things that we see him trying to do to Jesus in his temptation, he does over and over and over again in our life. And no doubt here tonight, we've got some of us here tonight that are discouraged, and Satan loves it, loves it. Or your, your faith is small and you've allowed other things to compromise that faith. And so you're not really that fired up about, about Christ and salvation. You can't wait to get out of here because of the Notre Dame-Michigan game or some other silly thing. Your priorities are all out of whack. Satan loves that. But he will not gain an ultimate victory in the heart of a true, genuine Christian. Because we are born of God. And Jesus is protecting us. And Satan can't touch us. Can't touch us. I love that. Isn't that encouraging? Can you imagine if... Imagine... Imagine if after this service, Jesus, you know, catches you and says, Hey, come here. He says, Okay, come here a second. You're like, Oh, Jesus, I didn't expect to see you. But wow, you're here. I mean, I knew you were here by your spirit. We sang to you. We prayed to you. But I can't believe that you're here. And he says, hey, I just wanted to give you a word. I want you to know you're going to make it. I guarantee it. How would you walk to your car? Like a million bucks, right? I'm going to make it. Jesus told me right here, I'm going to make it. And that is what he says. Whenever the Bible speaks, it is Jesus speaking. And Jesus is saying that to you tonight. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. If you are actually a child of God, you're going to make it. Listen to his, his care and concern for us. In John 17, he prays to his father. He says this, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He prayed that, John 17, the night of his betrayal, and he's been praying it ever since. Satan cannot touch us. And this produces then in us, when we actually understand this and apply it in our difficulties, an unshakable confidence We know that. We celebrate that. Hallelujah. We celebrate that Jesus is protecting us and that we are born of God. Our walk is guaranteed by God himself. 
The second thing we see in verse 19, again, this repetition, it's the outline of John. You can look yourself. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The second one we see here is an unshakable confidence in our birth. The genesis of where this salvation comes from, it is from God. Now this verse is the application of the previous one. If we are born of God, where did this salvation come from? Where did we come from spiritually? We came from God. Where did our new birth come from? It came from God. Where did forgiveness come from? It came from God. Where did our spiritual adoption come from? It came from God. Where does every spiritual benefit that we have come from? It comes from God. And so we see then that this whole thing is a God thing. Our salvation is a God thing. And the degree to which we get that and understand that is the degree to which we have this unshakable confidence. And next week I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to give this message, I'm going to tell you about my agony about assurance of my salvation because I was not doing this. I was focused on me. I thought I, it came from me somehow. But when I get my eyes off myself and I realize that he who began the good work in me is going to carry it on to completion, that God chose me before the foundations of the world, that I am one of his children, that he loves me with an eternal love, when I come to understand what all the things he was doing in eternity past and all the plan that he put in motion through the covenants of the Old Testament and, and to realize what he did in Jesus in the incarnation through the Virgin Mary and how Jesus did all that he did in order to accomplish this salvation and all the promises in the church and everything, all this, all, what did I do? I did nothing. I'm a guy from Iowa. I didn't do nothing. What did I do to earn this? Nothing. Nothing. It is all from God. We are born of God. Salvation is from God. And when I get that, it creates in me a grounding and a rooting and a, a confidence that I'm saved. If there is a God and Jesus is his son and the Bible is true, I am saved to the uttermost. The world rests in the power of Satan, but we rest in the power of God. We are his. And then the third one, just following John's outline, you can look and see yourself. The third, we know that. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Our third confidence that John highlights here is that our confidence is in our Savior, in who He was, in what He did. So we have here then, and, and I love the fact that this is the last this is the last thing that John says. It is a Christological statement. So much in here about the person of Jesus in his nature and in his, in his personhood and his work and what he did and what he accomplished and what that produces in us. And, I, and no doubt here he is giving one last uh, to the false teachers and what they were saying about Jesus. You know, one more time, just like, this is what we know is true, people. This is the bottom line. So let's walk through it. Let's just enjoy it. What is he saying? First of all, that Jesus is the Son of God. 
He is the Son of God. The false teachers that he is rebutting with this letter, they said he was a good man, that he became the Messiah. But Jesus, the person, was not always the Son of God. And here John says, no, he is the Son of God. He is the eternal Word. He begins in John 1.1, his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus did not become the Son of God. He did not become the Word. He has always been the Son of God. He is the Word. You remove Jesus' sonship, and you remove, then you remove His qualification to be our Savior. You say, well, how is that? If Jesus is not the Son of God, His death was not sufficient to pay the price for our sins. An infinite debt required an infinite payment. And I'm not worth that much. And neither are you. And neither is Jesus, if he's just one of like us. But he was God. And as the Son of God, infinitely worthy. And that death he paid on, uh, on, the, on Calvary for us, paid the debt we could not pay, but God can pay. And if he was not God, it means that the whole thing was a charade because he claimed to be God, didn't he? He said, I am God. I am, the, I am the Son of God. And if that is not true, he is a liar. And if he is a liar, he is not the perfect Lamb of God. He died for his own sin, that lie being one of them. He died as a sinner, just like the rest of us, if he is not the Son of God. His whole life in ministry was framed in the context of that relationship with his heavenly Father. How often did he say Father and, and talk about God as his personal Father? All of that. It's theater. It's fake. He was a charlatan. It's a charade if he is not the Son of God. But Jesus was and is the Son of God. He says here that he has come. That speaks of his incarnation. The first is his deity. Here we have his humanity, that Jesus came into this world. How did he come? Born of a virgin. Born of Mary. Born in the miracle by the Spirit, whereby Mary births the Son of God. As the Son of God, he existed before time began. But he entered into time and space. He entered into this world. He became a human being. He had a body like you have arms and legs and head and he ate and he drank and he slept he was one of us he dwelt among us and john began his letter with that that which we have seen that's which we have heard that's which we have touched we declare to you and how good it is to realize that this is an insider john is not writing to somebody hey i heard about this and i'm just passing on the word this is a guy that was an insider in the inner circle of jesus three peter james and john personally selected by Jesus as a disciple. This is a guy that walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, saw the miracles. He was there at Calvary when Jesus died on the cross. He was there at the empty tomb. He was there in the upper room when Jesus appeared. He was there for many other post-resurrection appearances and is a man that gave his entire life to this message. John's not writing as a guy who heard about this he is a guy that saw, touched, tasted, all of that. And he says, I declare to you, he was the Son of God who came. He really did come. God came, and his name was Jesus. And what did Jesus bring? He brought spiritual understanding and fellowship with God. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 
And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, while wonderful to think about the person of Jesus and to think about the marvel of the incarnation, we can sometimes think about these things and miss the fact that they are means to an end. Jesus didn't simply come to show off how amazingly powerful God is in the incarnation, although it was certainly that. Jesus didn't come to just experience death to see what it was like. He didn't come, you know, on a, on a tourist vacation to see what it's like to be human. All of these things were a means to an end. What was the, what was the end goal? The end goal is the glory of God and the reconciliation of us with our creator. He died so that we could be forgiven and so that we could have a relationship with God. They were means to an end. Sin has always been our problem. Sin is what keeps us from God. But Jesus perfectly imaged God the Father so that to know Jesus is to know God. They are one. They are one. One commentator says this, it is not only that Christ has revealed the Father by his incarnation, perfect life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection, but that through all this, he has brought us into the closest possible union with the one true God. By faith, we enter a relationship that will never end. And that's what it means when it says that Jesus is eternal life. He is what he provides. Now, I looked online, and apparently up in Chicago, there's a restaurant called Mr. Taco. Guess what you get at Mr. Taco? There's another restaurant in Chicago called Mr. Greek Euros. Guess what's on the menu at Mr. Greek Euros? Jesus is Mr. Eternal Life. He is what he provides. He is eternal, and He is the source of eternal life for all who believe in Him. And if you do not believe tonight, I want you to. I prayed before the service that you would. This isn't just noise. This is a person, a real person, who did something for you. He died on the cross for your sins. So that you could know God. And we come to know him by coming to know his son Jesus. Who is eternal life. He is truth. And then the final little verse of 1 John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Sounds almost like an addendum, doesn't it, a little bit? Oh, 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 and by the way, as I conclude, keep yourself from idols. And I think here what's going on is after a letter about false Christians, he just wants to give a final word about false gods. Keep yourselves from idols. You know, really what is he saying there? That's the negative, right? If, if dad says to son, uh, don't talk back to mom, that's the negative. But the positive is what? Honor your mom. Love your mom. That's what you need to do. Keep yourselves from idols. That's the negative. What's the positive? How do I keep anything from becoming more important, more lovely, more meaning-giving in my life? How do I do that than God? By loving Him first and foremost. To love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is how I keep anything else from becoming 
an idol. And so the whole letter, it's about false gods, it's about false teachers, it's about pretending and fakey Christians, it's about false Christs. The whole letter is urging the church to find what is true, to find what is real, to find what is authentic in the midst of a world that is filled with all kinds of charlatans and all kinds of fakes. And even within the church, so many people faking their faith and pretending to be the real thing. How do I know what is the real thing? How do I know in the midst of all of this deceit and all of these lies and all of this pretending, in the end, What really makes the difference? In the end, where does my assurance come from? And here's what you need to realize. Is that assurance of salvation comes in the person of Jesus and in the promise of God. Where does it come from? It comes from Jesus. It comes from God. So much of what John has said in this letter is, if you want to know if you're a Christian, look to the direction of your life. The moral direction of your life. Look to your loves. Do you love your brother or not? Do you love your neighbor or not? Do you love God or not? Look to your loves. But the final word in all of this is not inward. Okay? It is not inward. All my self-evaluation, do I love enough? Do I love enough people enough? Am I making moral decisions in my life? Those are all helpful, and I don't want to undermine anything that John has said because they are important. But in the end, what is true about all my self-evaluations? Completely subjective, aren't they? I'm comparing myself to the worst person I know. I'm going to go to Lake County Jail and see if I'm loving. (laughs) Completely subjective. John ultimately is not pointing us inward, but is pointing us upward. Where does our assurance ultimately lie? It is not in us. It is not in me. And it cannot be in me. Again, next week I'm going to tell you what it's like when you're trusting yourself. It must be in the person and the work of Christ. My confidence is in Him. As Robert Murray McShane said, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Christ. I think many, many of us struggle with assurance of our salvation because we are, we're just standing in front of the mirror and we're fixated on ourself and we're obsessed with ourself and we just self, we, we're navel gazing Christians wondering why our navel doesn't provide assurance. That wasn't in my notes. I don't know if it's good or not. Or whatever you're gazing at about yourself. Why do I look at me and I don't feel assured of my salvation? Duh! What do we find in ourselves, friends? When I look into my heart, you know what I find? I find a fickle person. I find a selfish person. I find somebody who too easily is distracted by the things of the world. And I go that direction suddenly. And I think, wait a second. I'm I'm a Christian. How can I? Why did I think that thought? Where did that come from? And I'm fickle, I'm, I'm totally wishy-washy. And what is true of humanity? We're all that way. We are all that way. We're like the flowers of the field. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. We live, we die, 
If my hope and my confidence in any way rests upon me or my performance or me living up to some standard to show that I'm a Christian, I will never have peace in God and peace with God. My confidence must be in Christ and in Him alone. As Spurgeon said, I looked at Christ and a dove of peace flew in my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. We look for that peace. We look for that feeling. We look for that assurance. And when that is what we are looking at, that like a bird flies away. But when I, as a Christian, and, and, and with, with the miracle of regeneration, I'm trusting in Jesus for my salvation. When I place my hope and confidence in Him, and for every one look at me, I'm taking ten looks at Him. When I am seeing Him in all of His glory, and seeing Him and what He did at Calvary, and when I'm seeing and realizing that this has been applied to me by the promise of God, that my faith is a gift from God, that my salvation is something that God began and is doing and will carry on to completion. When I rest in God, is what I'm saying and what John is saying, and in His Son Jesus... There is an assurance, a dove of peace that comes to my soul as a byproduct of my confidence being in Christ. And that is where it must be. True God is known through His Son, Jesus, and through whom we enter into fellowship By faith, which connects us to the eternal God. And so if you are searching for assurance of your salvation, I hope you've enjoyed this entire series. But in the end, the final word has got to be this. That if you look inward, you are not going to find assurance of salvation. You are going to be discouraged and depressed and wonder if in the end you're going to hell. Place your hope and your trust in Christ, friend. He is our Savior. We don't save ourselves. We do not save ourselves. Me me not hanging out with the pigs doesn't save me. Me making sure I keep myself clean doesn't save me. It is Christ who saves me. And as I apply that truth upon my heart, when I don't look in but look up, when I look at Christ, who is the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and is now set at the right hand of the throne of God, look to him so that you do not grow weary and lose heart, Hebrews 12. That is what we are called to do. It is not about us, it is all about him. And assurance of salvation comes as our heart, we don't just say that, friends, we don't just say it, but our hearts truly are loving and treasuring and believing and trusting and worshiping, and praising, and living for the glory of Christ. Here comes the dove of peace. I'm saved. I'm saved because of him. And we have then that unshakable confidence that we are actually children of God, and in the family of God, which we will enjoy for all eternity because he is Mr. Eternal Life. All praise to him. Amen.